J'ai demandé pardon sans qu'on puisse me l'accorder J'ai demandé ma route sans qu'on puisse me l'indiquer J'ai troqué mes études contre un disque de platine Tout en sachant tôt ou tard ton public de piétine J'ai vu les choses en grand, j'ai du grand, j'ai du talent Je reste sur mes gardes, je ne suis qu'un homme Ça capture mon image dans des sets et canons Tout ça se fait pour moi, ce qui est la tarotte Je suis Jean-Fan Biller And I'm Quentin Wilson Et ensemble nous sommes le De Favron Podcast Le De Favron Podcast nous parlons français très mal. Okay, so you speak French very bad. Very bad. Okay. I don't even think I don't even think that sentence is you grammatically to, correct. Don't you have to <laughs> somewhere in there? No, très mal. You're thinking très mal. you're thinking of Dutch, and it's the Chewbacca. No, that that's not a Chewbacca. It's, it's <laughs> of course you can do that. I bet you're a lot of fun at dinner parties. <laughs> is that you? <laughs> Of course I could do it. Uh, I'd love to be chewy. You see, and now, and you are the one with the chewy mask on. I know. At the right, and I should have been the one. Oh well. I need to get rid of that mask. That mask is horrible. Uh, has it gotten? Uh, has it taken on? A, does it have some organic growth? In no, it? no, it's in really good shape. But I don't know what they were thinking because the mask is like it only would fit Chewbacca. It's physically so it's big. Huge, yeah. You need to have like the the cranial size of a. Uh, I don't even know what. Like, you have a fairly large noggin. What size motorcycle helmet do you wear? I'm a large. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm not like a. I don't have a big head. If that's what you're trying to. I was insinuating it. it. Looks big. It's right? just because of all that knowledge with, with all the brain power. With you all got. that motorcycle uh -huh. knowledge up in here. I can't speak English good, but I got some knowledge. <laughs> you got that one reader that really was like all about. He was like, oh, Jensen. All, all of, the, the email I sent you, uh -huh, yeah. all of all of the love. I was like, nice. That really helped the ego. That was yeah. I was having a bad day, yeah. so that email was well timed, right? And then, I but then just think it. about what it does to me. I'm just sitting here over here, like, like chopped all the liver pieces. Oh, like little Crimea River, right? Crimea River. Nothing. If I have to deal with one more like kickstands up, uh. I'm just gonna go punch you in the face. <laughs> somebody, somebody wrote that on my clipboard at work. Even like kickstands up, like. Like, I need to hear that. Like, I need to read that. Like, I need to think about it. Quentin, I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. I just came back from the Yamaha <laughs> SCR 950 launch, and right as I got on the bike, some douche nozzle goes, kickstands up, Beeler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with the Beeler on the end. That's yeah. the best part. Never, I never punched a colleague in the face before <laughs> until then. <laughs> they knew who they are. They yeah. knew what they did. <laughs> Anywho... Been a busy, busy week for the both of us. It's good to good to spend my Friday night with you. Yeah. Hot date in yeah. the old homestead here in front of the microphones. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> we got a nice little Mexican food dinner, and you got a horchata. I got a horchata, I got a, so I'm really happy. And uh, the listenership will it will probably benefit from not having an inebriated, imbibing Quentin. For yeah. The, For the cast, you're imbibing in, in the normal manner. I've had like half a half a gallon of Mountain Dew, so this is gonna be a fun show. Yeah, right. Well, look, giddy up. Um, the, uh, yeah, giddy up. Like, we can definitely <laughs> giddy up. We got a. I want to get through a couple newsy items, but before I do that, because the big cranium over here oh, yeah. is gonna say thank you to everyone that's been following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for everyone that's been commenting on SoundCloud. I, I threw that out a couple shows ago, and then all of a sudden I saw a lot of people leaving comments and interacting on there. And I think that's a really cool platform. I wish it was a little bit more user-friendly for some things, but it, it's cool what they're doing, and I like it. And it's good to accumulonimbus a bunch of comments on SoundCloud. <laughs> wow. 
That's uh that's a cloud. That's a cloud I pun. I just, I just made a cloud Just pun. didn't even <clears throat> walked right into it. <laughs> You're really fucking up my flow here, Q. <laughs> You're really fucking up my flow. Uh, I'm going to finish off with a thank you to um, the people on iTunes that left comments and ratings. So I have to admit, this is how messed up iTunes is. Every few days or so, I scroll to see what the latest comments are and see what's going on there. And every time I would get to the bottom and it'd be like this one guy's comment and I'd be like, oh, okay, so there's nothing new because I keep seeing the same one over and over again. Not realizing that iTunes was sorting things improperly. So the very last comment was staying the same, but there was comments before it that were feeding in. So then I scrolled back and realized there was like 12 people that were totally leaving comments and I didn't say anything. So of a bad deal. So sorry, but thank you for leaving your comments and reviews. We really appreciate it. As you can tell, iTunes is a total cluster F. But Q, since the last show that we had, which I might say came out on time on a Monday. It did. did. Eh? Stoked. Eh? Absolutely. Yeah, right on. So now I'm going to jinx that by on this show. Why did you have to talk about it? I know, right? Or right. totally. Well, whatever. We'll just move on. So yeah, I got it out rad and a lot of people were stoked by that. Yeah. So we're going to try and keep that, keep that trend going. But what I was going to say is since that show, it's been about a week or so since we recorded that, I think 10 days actually, yeah, we kind of got cool. a little backed up getting um, our two first show out. Yep. There's been a bit of news. So I want to get through a couple newsy items really quick. I want to talk about um, the press launch. I was just at, I know you've done some, some bikey stuff. We've sure. got a couple, I think we're only going to get to one listener question today, but we've got a few listener questions in the queue that we'll get out over the next couple of shows. In the queue? You're in the queue. Yeah. Not, not in the queue, but... <laughs> mm, in the queue. In the queue. <laughs> That's where punctuation really counts. <laughs> um, or in our case, I should say voice inflection. But um, definitely we've got some stuff, so... Appreciating all the the comments and emails and feedback that we're getting. We'll probably just end up having to do like a listener question show just to get it all cleared out. Sure. I think we should do it live. I'm telling you. We could do a live show. And I I think we want to do a live show in person too. So maybe we'll do like a virtual live show. And then maybe because we've been talking about doing a show at Moto Corsa for the Portland people. Yeah, sure. So we'll try one of those and see how it goes. And we're trying new new crazy things. It's a a brave new world. It is. But without the whole like DNA resequencing. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's a that's a sci-fi joke. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I'm a fan of dystopian novels. It, unfortunately, like the memes say, it's like 1984 wasn't a how-to manual. So <laughs> when you read that and Brave New World and a, a few of the other ones that are that's like funny. That. That's funny to say because like my favorite genre has always been cyberpunk, like William Gibson, Neil yep. Stevenson, yep. Bruce Sterling, which is very much like the modern dystopian kind of. But some of those are utopic right there's not really but actually well i should say like my my, my favorite favorite author is william gibson before he kind of like got off the meth and heroin or whatever it was he was doing which was making him good it was making him good his new stuff kind of but those were definitely dystopian um and like like corporate taking over the world like it was corporations not countries dystopian which is kind of becoming a little yep true so that's what i'm saying a little awkward sure thanks willie awkward anywho enough of that rabbit hole let's get to it if you're playing the drinking game you should take a couple shots (laughs) (laughs) a quick one the a former scully scully our favorite helmet company former employee of scully has sued scully and founders 
Marcus and Mitch Weller over her suit is about her termination from the company and alleges a bunch of different things. And I don't really need to get into what her lawsuit's about because I have I have no opinion and I don't want to interject myself in that whatsoever. Sure. But what is interesting in her complaint, she alleges a bunch of things that Marcus and Mitch apparently did with company funds, basically using it with what they say in the lawsuit is a personal piggy bank. And there's talks of strip club money going from the company account, uh, various exotic cars. They bought a couple Dodge Vipers, supposedly, a couple apartments in San Francisco. Uh, looks like some funds were being used for personal Fri- vacation. Frivolous stuff. Frivolous stuff. Well, you know, and it's interesting, and I've had this conversation with a few people. Nothing that she alleges, at least from my opinion, sounds illegal. Illegal, yeah. Because it would fall under like a business judgment rule, which courts are very reluctant to get into business decisions to say like, well, what? Somebody say, hey, you know, I want, we wanted those matching vipers to show status and that's all you you know what? You can wear a scully in a car and yada, yada, right? So somebody could defend that if they're a good lawyer, right? Right. And just it's keeping up with the Silicon Valley lifestyle. Yep. Um, But it makes a, the whole accounting thing could be, there could be a fraud case in there somewhere, and I don't think anyone's going to ever make anything of it. But it was very, it very much felt to me like it was like the nuclear option where she was like, hey, you're going to settle this stuff. Otherwise, I'm going to start saying things in public documents that you don't want me to say. And uh, lo and behold, she she makes these accusations. It went viral across the internet. BuzzFeed picked it up out of all places. I think BuzzFeed was the first one to actually publish the news. Huh? I saw it on TechCrunch. I saw it on Business Week. Thought it on a bunch of tech and a bunch of business sites. It was really it, it interesting. It still blows my mind that that was that big of a deal. We're talking a $15 million company by the time it was, right? Well, that's how much money they had raised. I don't know. You can argue yeah, with the valuation. Sure, sure, but that's what I mean. Like, if we're looking at a dollar figure, it's not like we're talking billions. And it's not Samsung. It's not Apple. It's not, right? No. But see, that's the thing I think it's so funny. It's like, how did you guys blow through $15 million and still not get a product out to market? And all you're doing is taking a $50 helmet and putting a cell phone in it. And it's like, well, apparently this is how. Yep. You know, when you take a last minute trip uh, first class from the Bahamas to Hawaii, that costs like, I mean, that's like a $20,000 flight probably or, or up there. Sure. You know? Yep. Depending, depending. Hey, listen, I saw it firsthand how easy money can be funneled out. Uh, uh, in a startup with Motosys. Sure. I mean, and that, and that a lot of, most of that was good intention. Right. Right. So to see it in, it, it's quick. It happened quick. And that's where, and, and to, to bring it back, like that's where the business judgment rule comes in because some of that is like, there is good intentions. Like you, you can make an argument, especially in Silicon Valley, like uh, an executive needs to have some sort of transportation package, some sort of living arrangement package. Like those aren't, I wouldn't say every company's like that, but it's not unheard of. Sure. So you can make like a, a business argument and like that's that's actually legitimate, like where other people, other investors be like, yeah, actually we insist on doing that to recruit top talent. You see it a lot at Google and Facebook and Apple where they're they're very competitive with what sort of perks and benefits they give employees. Because they want good people. Because they want to magnet, you know, the good people out of the good schools or out of the, the good people out of good jobs. So I kind of get that. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily what Scully needed to do. But at the end of the day, it's not really for the court to decide. So it doesn't really matter. But, you know, caveat emptor to the investors. Like, if you're not keeping track of what your company's spending, and it sounds like in this case, maybe the books weren't reflecting what was going on, you know, you need to make sure you're doing your audits and you're on top of it, especially when you're taking this long and you're missing goals and you're missing targets. So, bum deal. The the, the saga just keeps, just keeps going for Scully. So I think that's just bizarre. 
I'm done talking about it, to be honest with you. If, I'm kind of done. I'm kind of ready to move on. Yeah, but in, I mean, I don't mean in even just for tonight, but in general. No, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. I, until I've been like, saturated. Sure. With that, let's move on. Because what I really want to talk to you about is Romano Fanati. Fucking Romano. Oh, my gosh. What a story. So, for those people that don't know, Romano Fanati is a Moto3 uh, racer. He's with the Sky VR 4016. This is Valentino Rossi's team that his buddy Uchio basically runs. Is it Uchio that's that's the head of that? He's the head of that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's I wouldn't say it's like his baby, but it's it's definitely like that's part of his day-to-day now. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I think he's the one reporting directly to Valentino about it. So it's one of the top teams in Moto3. They're, they're you know, very well sponsored by Sky, which is a big TV uh, entity out there in Italy. And um, they're creating a great little funnel from Moto3. Now they're pushing into Moto2. And then, you know, you could definitely see them having a course into MotoGP. Like, that's what we're starting to see are these kind of tracks for, for young riders to move through the ranks of, of GP racing. And this is definitely one of the tracks that Italian racers are supposed to be able to to work their way through. Anyways, Romano Fanati, um, debut race at Qatar, I believe, um, was on the podium. The next race he won, he's riding under the uh, the FFM, the Italian Federation. F. Why am I blinking on the letters? I think the FFM is the French one. FMI. FMI sounds right. I don't know. Um, Federation de Motociclismo Italia. Something I like don't that. even have a good pun for that. I'm sorry. You're really letting the show down. Drink your horchata. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're Romano Fanati, fat, fast kid. Let's just leave it at that. Fast kid. But a maybe, bit of an asshole. But a little bit of a jerk. I've definitely had some personal dealings with him. He's not my favorite racer. I'll just leave it at that. But the, the big news was he got suspended from the Sky 46 team for the Austrian GP after uh, some sort of altercation with the team. That's the official line. The unofficial line is that he had it out with one of his mechanics. They maybe got in a little bit of a tussle. Uh, They dragged him into the team hospitality. Uh, Him and Uccio started talking about it and then ended up Fanati taking a swing or they came to fisticuffs as well, knocked over a refrigerator and the whole thing. So the moral of the story is you're, you don't try and have uh, a fist fight with your boss. Yeah. So uh, now just or ahead the of person that's responsible for your life by virtue of the fact that they tighten the nuts and bolts on your high speed racing motorcycle. Right. Yeah. You know, like thinking about that, the, the takeaway of this uh, just came out, I think today or yesterday. Uh, he's been officially sacked from the team. And which is really interesting because if you get sacked from like Valentino Rossi's like personal Moto Three team, like that's a career ender, especially would, especially for something like like just he's already has a reputation as a hothead as being like a hard writer to deal with, but then to like you know literally get down to physical altercations, like that that literally could just end his career. There's some talk that maybe another team will pick him up, but I really I don't think an Italian team's going to pick him yeah, up. Yeah, a team that won't be as good by a long shot will pick him up probably. Well, the IO Racing team might, and that's he's got a not little bad. bit. He's got, it's not a bad, definitely not bad. It's one not of the best bad. teams in the paddock, and he's got a little bit of a reputation of being like the the horse whisperer. He kind of helped straighten out Maverick Vinales, and you know we'll see um, early days on that, but. It, I think there's a really interesting cautionary tale here for young aspiring racers. And this was one of the things that kind of came out from the, the sky VR 46 squad and like their program in general is like, you know, we're not just here to develop young 
men and women into fast motorcyclists. We're developing them into mature motorcycle racers that are the total package that are sponsor friendly, that are good people, that are good role models, that are going to help the sport, that are going to grow the sport, that are going to be, you know, ambassadors for us going forward. And, uh, you know, we've definitely heard about some racers that don't like the media side of things or, or have, you know, tough personalities or aren't as media savvy as others. And that's kind of like ebbs and flows. And that's like the nuance of it. Like in my head, I'm thinking of like Danny Pedrosa and cast and Casey Stoner just kind of being less media friendly than say like a Mark Marquez and a Valentino Rossi. Yep. But I think this is like another standard deviation removed where now it's like, okay, well you, you still have to be like a fairly decent person. Like you can't just be a dick all the time. But Fanati, there was a highlight reel of his clashes and I would say gesticulations on track. <laughs> yeah. And if that's a good word, I think that's a good word. That's a good word for it. In yeah. fact, I really like saying gesticulation. So he, uh, there's, it was a highlight reel that came up, I don't know, within the past year. And I think it was after he had a clash with, I can't remember the name. The, it's Io's son, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Io. Oh, the irony. Yeah. irony. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> so it doesn't work because it's finished and it's AJO. Oh, I just and, finished yeah. it, man. So Boom. The, uh, the, the, the highlight reel is, gnarly like just constant this kid being a dick and it's funny because you're like wow he really is a dick and then you see his kind of squinchy little face and it, oh you're just being mean i am totally but you see the yeah he's just kind of like oh you could, i don't mind him in a, in a strange way there's a bit of me that's kind of like you gotta love the italian passion you gotta love it but if it's this bad, if you're if you're attacking your your people, then you've got something wrong. He's either got he's got something wrong with him, like that he needs to be he needs to deal with it, and it can't be at the track. It, it can't. You can't have people like that in the paddock. No, no, it's it's a it's a bad deal, as you'd say. It's funny because when he first started, because I remember that race at Qatar, um, and I remember Scott Jones. Scott Jones has got a great story about Romano Fanati and his dad, and I won't even attempt to to tell it because it wouldn't do it justice. But it was this great moment of like. Scott taking a picture of the both of them and then he brought them the photo later and like how happy it made his father. Sure, like, of course. Because that was such a special weekend for them because it was his first time, it was Fanati's first time on the world stage. He was on this like kind of like borrowed bike and put it together. It was like the Italian Federation being like, hey, this guy's fast. We got to get him in front of people. Yeah. Like, this was kind of like a moonshot kind of thing and he goes out and he, he does really well and he gets a podium and the next race he wins and it's like, boom, it just it lit his career on fire. By, by being this young kid that was just fast. And it wasn't until, like, I think, I don't know if I met him that year later or later that year at Austin or if it was a season or two later, but I ran into him at the Red Bull party and he was a giant jerk. And I was like, oh, you let it all go to your head. And then, you know, now all this other stuff comes out and you're like, oh, you really let it all go to your head. Like, you really you really must think you, the world of yourself and hasn't really had the results to yeah, back it up. Yeah, and he's third in the championship as of right now. But he's, he's but a ways if you, back. If you watch, yeah, and if you watch some of the races, it's obviously that he does not have the racecraft, not even a little bit. Bender. Oh, yeah. Right. So, and most of them, Banyaya, Bender, Navarro, um, all of them kind of seem to have him covered, in, unless there's, uh, well, I don't know if the any of the listenership, you really should watch these races. It's impressive. And a lot of the times, it's just down to the draft on the last yeah. lap. Moto right? three this year and last year has been probably the best racing in the GP championship. Like, like literally throw yeah. a blanket over him on the last lap in the last corner, and you're talking a blanket over 
15 riders it's bizarre like you yeah. you wouldn't really like it sounds like i'm uh, i'm being uh, hyperbolic but it's it's really interesting to see so that that means racecraft is more important than out and out speed a lot of the times right you have to have the out and out speed you, but then yeah, you, you have to be gotta, able to you got to be there it. yep got to be there to be there but to to get that win or get that spot it it takes a, a fairly cerebral rider and um i don't i don't see him having i think he's just got the passion and pure skill but not enough for me he's like i was about to say he's a young andrea ianone just because yeah. that ha- that hot headedness, but I think Andrea has a lot more talent in him than Romano. Does. I agree, absolutely. And, and we saw that we saw that at Vienna, sure. or not Vienna, but Spielberg. Spielberg, yeah, which is not far from Vienna, but yeah. So you know, full credit to, to Andrea for uh, that. Well, who are they bringing in to replace him? Do you know? Uh, I think it was announced today, but I don't recall the name. Okay, yeah, it's too bad because I'm gonna, I'm sure there's probably an also ran person back I, there. I, yeah, that's the thing. I, I know they're bringing in someone for Bruno. I don't think it's a permanent replacement or there's speculation it might be and we don't know yet. We'll yeah. see. All right. But, you know, the the bum deal is he's not going to be that probably cost him a Moto2 ride. It could cost him his career. And it's kind of unprecedented. I can't remember the last time I've I've heard of somebody this high up and getting sacked for this type of thing. For this kind of thing. Yeah. I can't think of one. Which is funny because like the GP paddock's pretty forgiving, like or whatever. But this is definitely the first one I've just seen. Like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, congratulations, you're you're 20 years old and your career just ended, and you're I don't know what you do from then. Yeah, forward. You, you go and race the Italian Championship. You 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 work your way back up eventually. Maybe, Somebody will eventually maybe. say, yeah, 20 years old. He was a hot headed kid. If he keeps his nose clean for the next couple of years, and no, he might not be able to get back on Moto Two or Moto. You never know, though. You never know, man. This, Cautionary tale. This world Cautionary tale. is, unfortunately, I think more forgiving in some ways than it should be in a lot. You know? I think I think you'd be right. If it wasn't Valentino Rossi's team, yeah, sure. But I think you just crossed like the Godfather of Italian yeah, right. motorcycle racing, sure. and now you're Pisano Nangrata. Yeah. So waking up with the horse head in your bed. Uh, moving along, let's keep it in the GP paddock. Dorna is looking at maybe testing the possibility of teams being able to communicate with their riders via the dashboard, which they already do. Which they well, race direction already can do. So the way it works is the uh, the and I didn't know this by the way. Yeah, I didn't know this until this came out either. Actually, maybe I did. It doesn't matter. The the dashboard, or I should say, the uh, transponders are full duplex, so you can send and receive transmissions on them. So duplex, duplex, you like oh. that? Yeah, I like it. That's a hardware thing. Yeah, you ever like we had a switch once that wasn't full duplex and it was garbage. It was half duplex. Yeah, it was it a was single. A it was a single, single plex. It's a triplex. <laughs> I don't know. So the way it works is every timing loop that the riders go through, race direction can send them a message to say, you know, you've got a ride through penalty or you've got, you've been black flagged. And I, I want to say that they also get a notification for being a lapped rider. Yeah. Blue. Like a blue flag. Yeah. But I haven't, don't quote me on that one. Yeah, that sure. might, I might be wrong. It would that. make sense. It would make sense. Cause that's where I remember. That's why I say, I think I already knew about this because I vaguely remember there being a lap rider incident. And one of the things they're saying is we can start sending that message via the dash. Like that was the solution to it. But as we saw in Spielberg, it doesn't always work. So you kind of have to, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting problem. You can't have it as a given that that's the only thing, because when you're at speed on a bike, uh, yeah, the dash is providing information, but sometimes you're just going off of raw focus forward and you're not paying attention to that dash. And it would have to be a very, specific thing that's lighting up that could alert you 
You know what I mean? It would have to be like the dash would have to glow blue for a right. second or something. Well, <laughs> so this is, you know, this is an interesting one because I think, uh, I can't even remember what show it is, but I think just about any time we've ever talked about an MV Augusta bike, I've probably complained about the dash yeah, sure. and how hard they are to read. Um, and this comes back to that same idea. If you don't have good user interface design, good user experience design, uh, UI and UX, it, it makes a difference. So, you know, I think uh, I went looking through some of the photos. I think we just got to put this on asphalt and rubber, the different dash layouts that some of the riders use. Cause yeah. some of them, like I was looking at Valentino Rossi's, it has a ton of information. There's like a section of it that just has like a ton of information and it would be really hard for you to see any of it at speed. Whereas like Danny Pedrosa's is very obvious and he's got like these colored squares that outline like three specific things that he's trying to train his attention on. And it's just interesting to see how they, the different riders deal with that. But, um, and you can, can uh, uh, configure most of those dashes. They're, they're a TFT screen. You yeah. can just say whatever you want whatever you think is going to be pertinent to that thing and it, there's usually a testing scheme well and and there's the, a racing scheme and a qualifying scheme right and that was the issue with um some of the riders that didn't come in uh, i think it was um the aprilia riders and maybe hector barber where they the the dashes weren't set up correctly to receive the messages from race direction and i should preface that from a racing point of view the uh the flagging stations and the the pit board that says for the jump starts, those are the official channels of communication. Those are the ones that the riders should be looking for. The dash is a secondary. It's just to complement that. Yeah. So, you know, take that into account, but you know, the teams obviously didn't set up the dashes correctly and the, the riders weren't getting the message via the dash, which was part of their problem. And then they were just too busy racing to not notice the giant neon board with their number on it or the, you know, people around the track where they're waving black flags. <laughs> I just love that it's Hector Barbara that that totally screwed up his race doing why? that. Why? Why do you why do you love that it's Hector Barbara? Because everyone hates Hector Barbara. Hate like truly or everyone just kind of mild annoying. I think I think I think he's the crasher, right? He crashes everybody out, or no, is that Bautista? No, he's Bautista's definitely taking a few yeah. people out. Hector's the guy that's always drafting off people. Oh, and that gets him in, into some trouble. And he's also the one that got in a physical altercation with his girlfriend and they both ended up like having to do like community service for it. Oh yeah. Which just makes you makes it's gross. Yeah. So I don't know if I told you the story from the, uh, world Ducati week. I don't recall it. They, so the, the, it kind of culminates in this big event. That's almost like this huge stage and they bring out like all their GP riders and, you know, they take, you know, one from each team or I don't know if they took one from each team, or if they talked to every single one of them, it doesn't really matter. So, you know, they're talking to Casey Stoner, they're talking to the Andreas, they're talking to Danilo and Scott Redding. And then Hector Barber comes out. And I guess Hector Barber's got this like real mousy voice. You know, and he's already like five foot zero. And he just comes out and he's got like this like little, little voice. Hey guys. Yeah, like, hi guys, how you doing? And the crowd just starts cracking up while he's talking. And it's it's actually like I almost felt bad because yeah. like it, that would be like a horrible like if that happened to me, I would just like curl up into a ball and die. Like I just I'm done. My ego just my would just be crushed. Really? At eighty one thousand people were making fun of the way I talked while I was public speaking. Yeah, I probably just want to like just cry. I just oh. cry like a little girl all day long <laughs> with a skinned little knee. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact that it's 
it was Hector and like no one really likes him. I was like, eh, <laughs> I don't know if I feel, like I feel bad in like a human sort of way. Yeah, sure. But I don't feel bad in a Hector sort of way. <laughs> if you can, if you can, if you can make the distinction that yeah, I'm making there, yeah, if, you get, sure. if you're picking up what I'm putting down, uh-huh. <laughs> it just struck me as really funny. I'm like, oh, poor guy can't get a break. He's just like universally hated. <laughs> but um, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, just not a big fan. Um, but dash, you were th- we were going that with the dash, and he didn't read it, or he didn't. Right. Is he on a pre- he, No, he's on no, a Ducati. He's on a Ducati. Yeah, he's having a great season. Full credit to him. Up until um the the Austrian round, he had finished every race, and that's just kind of a bum deal. And uh, but that's racing. Yep. So Quentin, but the reason I want to talk about the story is I was curious to see what your perspective was on teams being able to use this communication through the dash. Well, as, op- as a former racer yourself and as a, a mechanic for a team and your, your racing background, I'm curious for your per, your per Well, any, anytime you can get information to people, it's, it's, it's good, right? Especially in a, in a situation where normally all you can rely on is that pit board. So having been the person that flies the pit board, um, it's difficult. It, it's, you, you would think, oh, you put a bunch of numbers on a board when they come around, you're good to go. Meh, it's it, it's not that easy. Uh, usually you're doing a countdown, and it's from however many laps in a race to zero. Some riders like to end, the, end on one. Some riders like to end on zero, so you have to know that and make sure that you have the numbers set up right. Sounds sounds easy, but it's not. Like You have to get that sorted, right? I definitely... I can't remember the riders, but I definitely can think of a couple situations in my head where that's been an issue. And and that can sometimes result in riders thinking they win the race and there's still another lap and they get confused and they shouldn't, et cetera. So that's one thing that's on a pit. That's a bit of information that you put on a pit board. The other one would be uh, it's it's lap, it's then position. So P1, P2, P3, P4. You, you need to know. And a lot of times when you're out there, you'd be surprised if you're not P1, um, in a dry, normal race where you can see obvious, you're, you might not know. And then you want to put the rider who's behind you uh, in a plus, like a plus 0.5, plus 1, plus 2, plus, right? So the plus being how far are you ahead of that person? And if you are paying attention, um, then you can see if that plus is coming down or going up and you, you can ride accordingly. You see somebody in front of you, you know you need to get them no matter what. That plus doesn't matter. You know you have to go as fast as possible. And sometimes you fake the riders out and put a plus zero um, even if they're a half a second behind because you you know it's time. It's time that you, you see that plus zero and you need to get the fuck going, right? So that, those bits of information are the normal things that you put on in a race. Uh, what you see in MotoGP will be names associated with those. So not just how close but who who is it like when you see that rossi's coming that's a significantly gnarlier thing than if you're going to see uh, pedrosa coming right or barbara or barbara right babs but, <laughs> babs <laughs> oh god so if if there's a dash thing though I, my deal is i cannot remember ever looking at my dash Ah, it's that it's such a rare thing. But of course, I've been racing bikes that really don't have much other than RPM. You know, I've I've had uh, Lambda sensor outputs that I've had to watch, but that's usually in practice to see how the bike's running. 
and then you're done with that after you do initial setup, um, depending on the bike. Um, it's like, well, wouldn't you want to know what gear you're in? No, fucking whatever gear is pr- providing thrust, I'm I'm in it, and I find change <laughs> it. I'm just going, and if I go up, I go down. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. So what, I I get it in some cases on the street. Maybe people they would like to know, but I'm not really bothered by that. Uh, but getting information like in a wet race condition or a wet to dry. That where that cluster fuck that happens every single time it seems to Rossi and the rest of them while Marquez just kills them because they have their shit together and they don't need to have the right whatever it was it was a couple races ago yeah where and there's been a few it's yeah. well, multiple that's, that times was the, that was the impetus of oh, what started all this and that was that I think is hugely valid and I think in that kind of a situation where you're you're already riding on eggshells. You you might be hypersensitive and be able to see and like okay when am I coming in and they might be able to say something or or have codes that are better than than trying to see at speed a uh, a pit board that sometimes you can't see because you're passing another rider onto the front straight or you're focusing on that rider so that you can draft correctly and you're not paying attention to that pit board it, it's you think that they're all it's easy. You're going by that. It's on the front straight 90% of the time on a long straightaway that's fast. So you're going by it at, at speed. At I mean, it, it, again, it's not as easy as it looks. So um, I, I think it's a great idea. Uh, obviously, the they've tried. Well, not obviously. They have tried in the past to do uh, sound, uh, right, uh, mics. Yeah. And that is supremely distracting for riders. I know that Honda did it in the Daytona 200 a long time ago and they tried and it just freaked people out right so so i've heard that before and there's a part of me that wonders like if we've just been implementing that wrong or if the technology has progressed to the point now where that can be done better because for me that feels like something that could be that should be very easy to implement i i agree with you and i think at the time um the mics were we didn't pick up well and it'd be too loud you hear it in nascar all the time they're talking it's part of the show Frankly, it's a depressing part of the show. I, I hate it. I think they should just be able to go out and... I, I'm not really sure. It depends on how what you look at is what the radio communications should be. Formula One, for the longest time, had these rules on what they could relay, what information they could relay to the rider. Uh, and they... Or, sorry, driver. So then just within the past couple of Formula One races, they've had to uh, relax those regulations because... There's safety issues, uh, possibly that they have to, to to they have to be mindful of relative to just saying switch it to map B, right? And then right. right that that's one thing that you're getting a performance advantage because you you're telling the driver that they need to switch to map B, but if you're saying hey don't use fifth gear because the the engine might like, seize yeah. because fifth gear is obviously uh, showing some sort of wear that they can see. And that was, I think, what was going on where they're like, you know, pass through fifth gear. Uh, you know, yes, it's going to cause a, a, a problem. You're not going to be able, as fast as you um, you were, but then you'll save the engine. You'll make it to the end of the race. So there's a safety aspect there. It might be performance, but it'd be safety. On the MotoGP bike, it's not as much. I think it's just more useful in the rain situations. Uh, but it could be like, hey, you need to change your map. Your your you can run a lot more fuel, right? So then you switch to map C. Switch to map C. You know what I mean? That'd be yeah. something like that. And that is and that is where the the electronics where they are now. That was that was a huge issue at uh, in Austria. It was the fuel consumption. Sure. And the way the new spec electronics work, uh, a lot of the bikes they they were learning. 
So after yep. a certain amount of laps, they would say, okay, hey, this is how much fuel I use. Yep. And they adjust their their fuel usage on the fly via the computer. Well, now that's gone. And so the riders have like, you know, three map options for fueling. And it's like full, full fuel, mid fuel and conservative fuel. And like the rider needs to know when to flick it. And they have a program. And I think that's actually something that's prompted to them on the dash on where they are on their Delta with that. But they have to manually change the maps. And this would be that potentially this could be somewhere to be like, hey, the team would be like, hey, you need to switch to map B. You're outside your fuel envelope. And we need to get you back in there. And I think we need to be mindful. Well, we have to explain a little bit to those who might not be into the racing as deep that fuel is critical because they limit the fuel. It's a way for them to limit power. Right. Right. So they they don't necessarily want these machines to be full power the whole time uh, or else you would end up with uh, very gnarly expenses. And so they're trying to, it's a way to kind of keep the cost down, kind of, right? So they have a 22 or 24 liter 22 liters, I believe. gas tank yep. and it's changed from the 990 to the 800 and then went to the 1000 and now it's whatever the size and they've kind of kept it. And the teams that, or the the machines that have been able to to increase efficiency with power are, well, frankly, Ducati um, has, has been really good at it. They haven't been able to have the whole package up until this last race, frankly, but their ability to make obscene amounts of power, get it to the ground and and be able to use not that much fuel is is remarkable. Uh, and I don't know if the winglets have some a little bit to do with that. Right? They do. I mean, they certainly do because when you're cutting cutting spark, you're wasting fuel. You know, it's just going right out the tailpipe. Yeah, true. Uh, so and there's a little bit of that that element to it. And I you're mean, cutting spark. Hold on, you're cutting spark to to limit the power be, and to limit the wheeling is what right. you're saying. That's the correlation. Is you're right. saying with the winglets wheeling okay. right, and the winglets would be helping keep the bike yep. down. So then you don't have to have some sort of electronic intervention. Yep. This is why Ducati is being so pro winglet in the first place is because they've put a lot of energy into it. And they're saying, and and the the rumor is that it is making a good, a good sizable improvement on their ability to keep acceleration going down front straight. Um, I shouldn't say front straight, on straightaways and uh, keeping the nose of the bike down. And it's it's showing a lot of positive things for them on the performance, which is why we've seen so many teams start copying them. Um, obviously at a high speed track, like, uh, Spielberg, the, the, especially for the Ducatis, fuel was a big issue and they had to have a very smart fuel strategy to, to get all the way through. And it sounds like a lot of the teams were having varying success with their fuel strategy, having only been there one time for, for a racing event. And, you know, they'll figure that out over time. But my big thing with this story is I, I see two camps coming out of it. You have those. Uh, hardcore racing fans who I should say are very conservative on their views and their changes to motorcycle racing who feel that teams being able to communicate with their rider take away from the sport. The argument I hear is that it should be about the rider. It shouldn't be about the teams. The part of the package is knowing when to come in in the yeah. rain and yeah. and all that and, and letting the, the racers have their race craft dictate that to them. And then there's the other part, and I think I fall into this camp, that just see this as another element of you know just kind of time marching on like it's it's a little silly in, in from my perspective that the way we communicate with racers as they go by is this giant like billboard yeah when we have so many technological uh, sure. advances since then like we're we might as well just go back to smoke signals like just get like your little carpet <laughs> and just be like you know two yeah. puffs for danny pedrosa one puff for lorenzo like there's this idea that we're going to deny the progress of technology and two i always look at 
How do we get non-racing fans into the sport? How do we make this sport appealing to younger people that are maybe more tech savvy? Like, I think I'd be very interested in seeing a list of messages on the side of my screen because uh, I think they're saying that they can use all four timing loops. Dorna has more timing loops on the track than just that, but there's four official timing loops yeah, for sure. the sectors. I think it'd be interesting to see, like, just on the side, little tick marks, like, what are the teams feeding the riders at those different uh, timing loops to add another layer to the sport? I think it'd be very interesting. It adds another dimension. There's definitely people that disagree with this. That's why I wanted to see where where you fell on that side of the argument. Well, you know, if Scully would have continued on, they might have been able to have a heads up display for these for these guys. Wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, but but truth all, be told, that's yeah, not that crazy. I know. So we somebody posted a picture of a of one of the jet helmets from an F thirty five joint mm-hmm. strike thing. Yep. And that what is it up? eight hundred thousand dollar helmet or something there right yeah so there it, it it's an amazing piece of equipment that keeps that person in 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 it all of it right where am i what am i doing how am i doing it where am i flying to who's around me what bombs am i dropping where are the day going all of it all at once and if you can have a similar thing motorcycle racing or get to that point yeah I can, I can see it but some some part of me i have to admit though there is i have luddite in me put the helmet on harden the fuck up get on the bike and go and you make the calls i, I hear that argument my thing i had this great conversation with pierre terblanche oh fame <laughs> fame motorcycle designer who's worked at south african south right? african yeah even though it sounds very, very French. He, the name's very French. You talk to him, he sounds British, and he's from South Africa, and he worked for an Italian company. Like, there's a, like a very... Yep. Worldly. Cosmopolitan kind of thing going on there. But we were talking about the design of the 999. Universally reviled. I don't know if it is, though. <laughs> I mean, like, that, I was just thinking about this right before you showed up, and it was like, that bike, I feel, with every year, ages better. Like, I think... Five, ten years from now, that's going to be such a hot collector bike because it'll kind of finally have come into its own. It'll found its time. It's like, I feel like it's an artist that like died before they were appreciated. And now like it's coming into the appreciation. It's like Van Gogh. Like I don't think Van Gogh was a famous painter when he was painting. I think it happened after he died. If there's any painting experts out there, let me know. If well, I'm that's the way around. a lot are. For a sure. Lot, sure. Yeah, but, yeah, no doubt. But that being said, he, he had this great comment because he was just like, what was it? He said something to the effect of, I failed to take into account the conservative nature that's inherent with motorcyclists. And I feel like that's the same thing that goes on with motorcycle racing. I feel like motorcycling in general is a very conservative industry. And I mean that in like a resistant to change sort of way, not in a political way. Sure. Um, And I feel that motorcycle racing is even more conservative, especially when you look at like chassis design and, oh, yeah. and things like that like no, what's going yeah. on in moto 2 and things sure. like that like that's a whole thing so you know when i listen to like my hardcore racing friends we had this out on the paddock pass podcast i should say and i i was definitely in the minority and my defense would be you know when i talk to hardcore racing journalists about it they're just so set against it and they use formula one as a great example of why it shouldn't happen and i sit there and i go you might be right but my worry is that you're so resistant to any sort of change. You're so resistant to anything outside the norm. And you're so focused on keeping racing the way it is and keeping racing pure, whatever that means, that you don't take into account this idea of like, this is entertainment. This is spectacle. This is sport. Things evolve. The, the, the racing demographic needs to evolve with the population demographic. 
You know, if we sit here in the motorcycle industry and talk about how are we going to get millennials on the bikes, I think that same conversation needs to happen at the motorcycle racing level and be like, how are we going to get millennials into MotoGP? How are we going to get them excited about motorcycles riding around in a circuit? And I don't think the answer to that is the Luddite argument. I think it's the opposite of it. And for me, as kind of a millennial Gen Xer, someone that's in the middle of that, like I want to see advanced things. I want to see the progression of the sport. If this is MotoGP and it's supposed to be the the prototype pinnacle of technology racing class, why are we using giant cardboard boxes to communicate to people? <laughs> you know? Sure. So something to chew on. I'm sure uh, listeners will come down on different sides of that topic and um, maybe can leave us some some emails. Uh, yeah, I'd, like, I'd be interested to see feedback. If you do want to leave us some feedback, uh, leave us your opinion to enthusiasts at asphaltandrubber.com is the email to do that at. And uh, we'll maybe take some of the uh, the comments we find most interesting and share them on the next show. How about right that? on. Uh, let's move it along. Some news from the last 24 hours. The EPA just slapped Harley Davidson with a $12 million fine for selling uh, its super tuners, which are basically just little FI module boxes. And then, this is my favorite part, on top of the $12 million civil penalty, if you want to call it that, uh, or civil fine, since someone tried to make a distinction between the two, uh, they have to spend another $3 million to help mitigate uh, air pollution through a project that replaces conventional wood stoves with clean burning stoves in local communities. <laughs> it's like what? it's like it's like the like corporate version of like doing community service. <laughs> it's like okay, so you're going to have to pay us some money in punitive damages and then you're going to go like, you know, pick up trash on the highway because you've been a naughty naughty boy, Quentin. <laughs> I didn't see that. Yeah, it's a fun little joke cuz that's You'll see the headlines. Depending on which publication, they'll say a twelve million dollar fine or a fifteen million dollar fine. That's where the fifteen is coming from. Okay, so they and this is uh, federal. This is the EPA. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's, it's an EPA action. The DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice, is the one that put yep. it all together and, and came to the settlement. So they said, "Hey, uh, this company would probably be best helping us out with wood burning stoves. Wood burning stoves. I'm, judging by the bikes." <laughs> They're, they seem antiquated. They're into their antiquated <laughs> things. It's very, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I and, love it. It's just the weirdest little thing. And then on top of it, they're going to have to buy back all these boxes, I guess, from their dealerships. All the boxes, but not maybe not necessarily the bikes. I don't know. So, so this is, that'll be interesting. So this is this is the, the TBD on this is to see what ends up being done about the, the boxes. TBD, where, the to be determined. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, yeah, it's TBD. I know. I'm just making sure. Because you know what? Not everybody is down with the lingo, right? Not everybody. I feel like TBD is ubiquitous in the common vernacular. Okay. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what, what Harley has to do because they sold like 340,000 of these boxes and then they sold 12,000 bikes, which are probably, I guess, their CVO models. I think... Most of these bikes are being used on racetracks, though, so it, it, they'll be able to prove it out. Well, that's right? the interesting thing, and a lot of people are asking, what does this mean for companies like Dynojet? Uh, what does this mean for companies like Bazaz? What does this mean for dealerships? And it's kind of a, it's going to be kind of interesting, to be honest. I was being facetious, but there are a lot of Harley riders that go down to the drag race strip, but really, that's not like its sole purpose by a long shot. They only... The only thing, there was one Harley they made that was a, a V-Rod destroyer that was a, a really, it was the only race bike they've made in a really long time that was for end users, yeah. you know? I know, which, I know which one you're talking about. Yep. It, it, 
I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is what the packaging looked like, what the marketing looked like, and what the interaction was with the consumer at the dealership level. Yeah. Because my understanding was, so there is a street version. There's a street tuner, and then there's the super tuner. And the street tuner is very mild, and it's it's perfectly legal. Is it? Is It's EPA and DOT and yeah. CARB legal? I don't know if it's CARB, but it's yep. EPA. Yeah. And then, but my understanding is it doesn't really do anything worthwhile. Yeah. And it's it's also cheaper. And for some of the modifications, like if you had a guy come in and want a new exhaust and, you know, had a intake or whatever, some of these uh, stage kits that Harley puts out there, it had to basically have a super tuner on it for it to work. Sure. The street tuner just, it just wouldn't work. The bike would run like shit. Yep. And I think that's where they started to get into murky waters where it's like, okay, well, now your dealer's installing something that's race use only. It's not for a race bike. It's a bike that's clearly being used for the street. And how does that packaging work? And, you know, there is kind of a, a thing there and you know i'm of the opinion that i think they just they didn't keep their their shit tight because they're when you get to this this level it's a very fine line that you have to walk as a dealership or as a as a business that's selling these products and there's certain jurisdictions you can kind of get away with certain things and others you can't and it's really easy to run afoul and i think harley just ran afoul i don't think they I think they're probably their dealer training let them down or or their best practices or whatever their in-house counsel was recommending just ran them afoul. And the EPA was like, hey, guess what? You guys did some stuff. We didn't like that. And and it was really funny in the press release from the DOJ, the they made it very clear, like, we are making an example out of Harley-Davidson. This is a warning shot to the industry to clean up your shit or we're going to start finding the rest of you. And truth be told, there is stuff going on of this nature at various different manufacturers, whether it be sound or emissions or what they're doing with performance parts. And so I think there's a couple OEMs that are probably either were a foul or maybe still are that are looking at this and this is aimed at them to be like, hey, you better get your stuff together, buddy, because we're coming for you next. Yeah. And I know that from firsthand how difficult it was to deal with this stuff relative to California specifically on the Ducati side, because really there's certain marks that are modified as almost like it's it's part of the culture, right? Harley Davidson, you put pipes on, potato, potato, potato. You got to do it. Well, it's like almost any bike. Like what bike, how many bikes out there do you see with stock exhaust? Sure. Right? Sure, sure. sure. But I would say there's more, there, there, it's more intrinsically linked with certain and Ducati for certain surely is right for sure absolutely so uh that that's been a big deal is getting carb legal not just EPA but carb legal exhaust systems approved for California uh California Air Resources Board is what that is so that has been a big that was a very complicated problem to get around and they did it uh, and I, I think mainly because the Euro 4 standards uh, are, are stringent enough to be almost matched to CARB. So they're able to say, okay, Terminioni's going to make us some exhausts that are, uh, you know, different than stock, but somehow, some way uh, uh, work uh, that are CARB legal. They might not be DOT, like sound legal, but they might be CARB emissions, right? There's there's right. a weird game right. of like, which which thing are you morphing it into to be quote unquote legal? Uh, and a lot of dealers won't won't sell them. Um, and it, it's it's difficult, you know, and as an end user, you end up with a bike that has a, a full exhaust system, which means generally from the, from the cylinder head all the way to the tailpipe, um, a complete 
system instead of catalytic converter, which should be there. You take it off, and like I had a Multistrada with that full system, um, and I, I, I would assume that it would be very difficult to to call that a, a bad thing in Oregon or be illegal. It probably could be if you were stringent enough or somebody really wanted to get funky with it, maybe. I don't know, but I had that, and that was one of the enticing things for a friend of mine from California to buy my bike because uh, they knew that they could get the bike and take it to California and be just fine, but they couldn't get... A, uh, you can't even get us as a dealership to ship uh, exhaust systems down into California. You got to be really careful. So... They're, everybody has to be kind of uh, yeah. uh, sensitive to where things are getting shipped and how and who, and they don't want anybody coming after you. Right? And I can tell you firsthand experience, when a CHP officer wants to give you a hard time, the first thing they do is they look at your exhaust. Yep. We've, we've had this conversation before because we've had this conversation about the EPA when they yep. were trying to do the restrictions. And it does it is interesting to see them going after Harley, and it's kind of the same thing where it's like, hey, you're using a race-only part on a production bike and we're coming after you for that because there's there's certain elements of that that are the same but this to me seems like this is something that's always kind of been in the ether this has been an issue and harley just kind of somehow ran afoul of it which is really weird like you'd think like a big company like that would be a little bit i think tighter on this i think but. i wouldn't say there was payola but i would bet that somebody there pissed somebody off in washington i know it sounds yeah that's stupid that's cheesy I think it can be that trite, especially after the dealings that I know of that we had to at Ducati deal with uh, entities in Washington. And I'd hear the stories and I'd always wonder, eh, is mm. that how can this possibly be that this one person is control of such a large part of how vehicles are regulated? And I would worry that there's somebody there that said, all right, you know what? I don't like the way Harley Davidson is getting cocky about selling these things, and I think we need to do something yeah, about it. Right? I don't know about that. I'm not that cynical. I'm not that cynical of that process, but I can tell you if I was the EPA or if I was the DOJ and I saw an industry that was maybe doing some stuff that was in the gray area, let's put it that way. I'm not going to say they are doing anything wrong, but in the gray area, yeah. in a way that I don't really like, you know how I'm going to knock that off in the bud? I'm going to go after the manufacturer that sells one and two new bikes in America every year. Yeah. I'm going to drop a Absolutely. bag of bricks on them. I'm going to drop a Brinks truck on them and I'm going to scare everyone else straight. Yep. That's what I would do. And that's that's what it feels like to me where it's like they said, hey, we don't have enough resources to go after all yeah, these apparently. OEMs. Yeah. Let's pick one, crucify them, and everyone <laughs> else is going to be like, oh, Jesus. Tighten up. Snap in the line. So, you know, we'll see. It, it's... It's interesting, Harley-Davidson stock dropped 10% on the announcement of the news and then rebounded. They ended up uh, down 2% for the day, so they definitely took a beating on Wall Street for it. And um, I don't think this is the last we've heard of this story in 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 some permutation. I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg. So Agreed. I think at some point in time, Quentin, you and I are going to be revisiting this topic. Yep, I agree. Um, with that, I think we've gotten the news out of the way. Let's talk about riding some motorbikes sure so why don't you tell me what you've been up to because i haven't seen you in a while yeah sure i nothing amazing but i haven't been on a, uh, a long motorbike ride in a while and i got my hands on a mid 2000s uh, multistrada 1100 uh, and went on a tour of central oregon and i i've been here for 
nine years and I've done a lot of riding. And what I tend to do is go straight to Eastern Oregon because it's uh, epic. It's epic. The roads are good. Uh, there's nobody out there. There's no cops out there. There's no. It's it's gasoline. Just, yeah, it's, <laughs> right. Uh, but I and I and I haven't gone south through the Cascades a whole lot, mainly because it's dangerous. the The trees. I mean, this is a very, uh, a, a a very woodsy place on the on the Cascade side. So when you're in on the roads that are going through the forests, there's it's a lot different than being out in the scrub brushy. Uh, canyony areas out in, in eastern Oregon. So the animals and the uh, uh, the amount of stuff on the road, et cetera, I, I kind of stay away from it. I'd, you have to run through it to get out to the good stuff, but I haven't wanted to do it. So I ended up going south um, and went to, did something called the McKinsey Pass, which runs from Sisters, Oregon, near Bend, uh, down into uh, basically a place called Oak Ridge. And it was just phenomenal. And the bike was phenomenal. Uh, I hadn't ridden a uh, air-cooled two-valve in a while, and I had been riding multi-stratas that are, you know, 160 horsepower, four-valve, high RPM, right? Big, big torque, everything about them, heavy, and to get it back on more of a distilled version, had that has, um, it has. 17-inch wheels, normal, sport-oriented, sport but has a little bit more uh, um, suspension travel so that you don't have to worry about stuff in the road and you can go over dirt and no problem, but lighter than a multi, a newer-style multi. It was just ba more back-to-basics, and I enjoyed it immensely, uh, so much so that I'm, I'm probably going to buy that bike. Really? Yeah. You liked it that much? Yeah, well, my ST2 has been down for so many years because it burns a quart of oil every gas fill up and it's got 140,000 miles on it. So I, my excuse at the time to buy the multi, the big multi was, okay, I'm going to buy this big multi and I'm going to take my ST2 apart while I have it. Well, life happens and, and then that didn't, right? I never got it. So the ST2 still, still languishes and I really love that bike and I'm going to rebuild it, but I need something and a backup. If you're going to play with these bikes like this and ride them that much, you just got to have backup. And this is something that I could probably rip out a track day on every once in a while. Maybe that wouldn't be a, a focus, but it, it would be fun. Like I could go out to Oregon Raceway Park and have a blast on this bike. It would be perfect. And I already have a, I'm one with the chassis on it. So I'm, I'm stoked by it. So did that. And it was an 800 mile two day camping journey. And I don't, I haven't done a lot of camping um, on bikes. I did it last year on my XR. I did some dirty bike camping and it was great. So doing that this time was really good. It's simple. And we did it very lean. So I, I like that. I like the leanness to just get to a spot, post up, don't have to really cook a lot of food, just get a get a sandwich um, and, and, and not really have to have a whole lot. I, I liked that aspect of it, uh, getting on the road and going and not really having to stop a bunch. It was, it was a good journey. Um, it was a good journey for that. Towards the end of it, though, it was very interesting. I pull out of a little town called Thai Valley, and I had this weird feeling um, uh, there's a twisty road going up and out of a canyon. And I was like, wow, that's felt weird. But then it was windy. It was going right out of the canyon up into a, a, a kind of a, a flat plain area. So, oh yeah, the wind must've blown me. Keep on going. And it was a long straightaway for a while. And I get back into the, to the woodsy area and, and get in the twist and the bike felt like something was wrong with it. Something was loose. So I kept looking down, look at the front tire first. Cause it felt front tirey and that's nah, fine. I don't stop. 
No, I, that would be yeah, that would make be, too much sense, right? <laughs> I don't stop. I just look at the front tire and I look at the rear and I look at the rear on both sides and I'm, you know, I shake the bike a little bit, <laughs> like I'm whacking it back and forth, seeing it like, right? It feels like an axle's loose. I'm like, that's weird, but not that bad. So I just keep going. I go 70 miles more and stop at a place that I I know. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop at this spot. Stop and get off and have a look around. And the person I'm riding with, I'm like, can you can you uh, lift up the bike for me? So they, they, they lift up the rear of the bike. And I grab the wheel and it's just fucking completely loose. Like, not like about to fall off, but... The threads on the sink, it's a single-sided swing arm. It has one wheel nut. It's a 46-millimeter nut, and it's held on with a clip, and that was all that was holding my bike together. That was all that was holding my life together for who knows how long, but probably 70. It might have been loose beforehand, and I just didn't notice it. I don't know, but it was a very, it was a good object lesson. Number one, I didn't have anything to tighten up with, so I had to just hand-tighten it and then put the clip back in in a little bit more of a secure way and then zip-tie the clip it's hard to explain this, but you zip tie the clip so that there's no fucking way it could come out at all, right? It's then dug in like a tick. So I did that because I at least I had zip ties. And then I rode, I think it was another 50 to 70 miles home. And of course, I started off slow, but <laughs> then <laughs> it didn't take long before <laughs> I was doing 70 somewhere. And I was like, oh my God, I'm stupid. So interesting interesting thing and, and and then i find out the person that owned the bike before me had had that happen multiple times which then wears components in the wheel and the spacers that makes it more difficult to hold torque so now i'm just gonna have to buy a couple of different components so that i can make that not not happen again but object lesson is do a nut and bolt check this is a used bike I, I picked it out a lineup of, you know, used bikes. I'd kind of been having it off to the side for myself for a while because I want it. But I should have done more than just a just a general inspection. It should have been wheel nut, uh, both sides, the, the sprocket side and the wheel side. And, and I'll do even just checking the front axle nut and all that. I didn't do it. I didn't. I just went and wrote it. And that's um, it's a bad deal. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me in my head, I keep thinking of Maxim Berger's uh crash and superbike a few years ago where the wheel the wheel broke yeah, yeah. it's different but it, it, it the same thing would happen yeah you would have been kind of scooting around and yeah, that's scary man that's scary stuff uh i had something similar the other day i was on the street fighter and the the wheels kept breaking loose like in the turns and i, I think ultimately it was just um hot day tar snakes things like that yeah sure but my first instinct was, I'm like, huh, I wonder if my rear wheel has a flat. Because I've had that before where I've had a flat and I didn't realize it. Yeah. And I go around the turn and it kind of does like a, yep. a dirt track style. And like it just, because it's losing that grip and it's spinning up. And um, it, it reminds me of that, that same kind of thing where it's just like, you know, sometimes I know, at least the, the MS, when I went through the MSF course, the whole thing was, you know, you inspect your bike before every ride. I think there's a certain amount of that that's not practical, no, especially yeah, sure, if sure. you're riding on a daily basis. Like you can't just do like a 20 minute inspection before you go down to the store or go to your job every day. But there is something to be said about taking them maybe every on like at least a weekly basis or whatever. Sit down and make sure all your bolts are tightened. I've got a buddy. In fact, I know he marks all of his bolts with a pen so he can visually really quickly see like, okay, that bolts come loose because the the two marked lines yeah that's what i'm going to be doing Uh, aj our friend aj brought that up you should just mark paint it and and check it all the time of course of course i hadn't really i hadn't thought of it i just like i torqued it but no 
keep keep a little paint mark on it and then check it every once in a while um yeah glad you're still with us glad that glad that story was a happy face not a frowny oh, face. oh yeah dude it was a, that could go that could go south pretty quick bad but no the eastern oregon thing was great because went to the painted hills never been i there's a lot of riding areas where there's notable um touristy things that i you just ignore because you're all about ripping and tearing on the on the roads that are out there so this was a good opportunity uh even though it wasn't like 100 degrees but, you know, whatever that's that's summertime we haven't had much of a summer up here so it's time to to soak it up um and that was good it was a good ride what about you so i just got back from the yamaha scr 950 launch out in julian california it's uh very near mount palomar palomar mountain state park which is a very popular like kind of san diego riding spot temecula i'd only been there once before um, so it was nice to go out there again and, and, and to ride some motorbikes out there. This is in the weekdays, right? Yeah. Cause that's Skippy central oh on the weekends. I know it's Skippy central on the week on the weekends. No, we were out there. I rode on Thursday. So middle of the day, Thursday, no traffic. It was awesome. Perfect weather for it. Wasn't too hot. Certainly wasn't cold. Um, Southern perfect Cal- bike for it. Perfect bike for it. So it's an interesting bike. Like, so you and I had talked, obviously, before, so, so I should back it up. For people that don't know, the Yamaha SCR 950 is Yamaha's, and I'm doing the little air quotes, scrambler bike. I'm going to be like the TLDR, too long, didn't read it. It is a Yamaha Bolt with a couple aesthetic changes to make it look like a scrambler. That's what this bike is. And the it's Yamaha a, Bolt is it, a is a full-on cruiser. It's a metric cruiser. It's a budget metric cruiser. Yep. So... That's basically what we rode was still a budget metric cruiser called a scrambler. So take that into consideration. And and you and I had talked before I left and I was kind of shitty about it. Cause I remember seeing this bike a couple months ago when Yamaha unveiled it. And it was really like, it was another one of those moments where I felt like I was crazy because I had a bunch of colleagues being like, that's so cool. That's the coolest bike I've ever seen. I want to get on that bike. That bike's awesome. And you're like, that's, and I was like, you mm-hmm. gotta be fucking shitting me because that's a cruiser with like a number plate and like, some knobby-ish looking Some tires. knobby-ish looking wheels. And like we're all supposed to sit here and say the emperor has no clothes. Did I miss something? Did, are we getting paid? Because I didn't get paid. Who's giving out the checks because I didn't get paid? That being said, got to keep an open mind. I didn't hate this bike as much as I thought I would. And I dare say I kind of liked it. Oh, I like with a with a the with a little thickens. with a little. There's definitely some caveats. Like it, you have to understand that it's not a scrambler. It is as much of a scrambler as a Panigale with knobby tires is a scrambler. Well, whatever. So, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, because you know, if if we had to throw out like numbers, I'd say it's a 95.5 road yeah. off road. Of course. But like, but you can say that about any bike, really. I know. You so put, that's that's you the put thing. TKC80s. On anything. On anything. You can you turn it into and a And that's what this bike. bike needed was some fucking TKC80s because yeah. I forget what brand tires were on, but they're just big block road tires. Yeah. And they worked okay. They were fine. I'm not going to get... It's for style. I'm not going to get shitty. It's for style. The biggest problem with this bike is the it needs like two to three, maybe if more would be better, more inches of suspension travel. It needs longer suspension. Because the two biggest issues are it has so little ground clearance that if you go over any sort of bump or rut or pothole or whatever, 
you're bottoming out this bike. You're not. It's so it should be called a bottomer, not a scrambler. It needs a skid plate across the entire bottom of the bike, so it can just like skid right over. It's and a that bottomer. Was a, it actually has a skid plate in the parts catalog. Ooh. And it doesn't even like. It just goes like the front, like yeah. the front little lip, and then like just under. Yeah. So it's like parallel so to it the looks ground. The part, just to look at. I'm like looking. I'm like. This bike bottoms out everywhere. You need this thing. You need like this thing to be robust. You need a proper s- skid plate, not just little. Or you're missing the point, as that it's just a fucking lifestyle bike. Well, that's the thing. So post heritage. It is. It is that post authentic. You know, we they, and they. Their Yamaha makes no qualms about. It. They're like, hey, this bike is built for millennials that are tapping into this. You know, scrambler aesthetic thing because that's where the the custom market is now. And actually, it was really interesting to see how they were breaking down the custom scene and how it went from classic cruisers to performance, you know, cruisers to choppers. And now the new thing is baggers for the, the Gen X people and older are going more towards baggers while the millennials and younger are going more towards this cafe racer, flat tracker, street tracker kind of thing, scrambler. And that's what this bike is for. It's for, it's for the 20 something year old guy or girl that wants a street bike that looks like it could go off road and we're going to put block tires and wire spoke wheels on it. So if you wanted to go down a fire trail, you can. And Instagram photo ready. It's and but that's the thing like and you sit there and you're like, "Oh, it's got um 52 horsepower and it weighs 547 pounds. How much fun? <laughs> how much fun could this be?" Oh my god. And the price point's like $8700 and you're just like, "Wow." Like on the spec sheet, it's so underwhelming and that's why like I was so shitty about it before. But like once you, you unleash those 52. Well, I mean, it's still it's still it, it's a bike that could definitely benefit from having more power and they definitely don't make power because the bike, the engine, that bolt engine that the 942cc air-cooled V-twin just lump they've put in there. It, it's so vibey that there's just no way they could rev it any higher. Like, I'm sure it just has too much primary whatever bullshit balancing that it would just his gesticulations right now. I look like I'm trying to like milk a steer. That's what I look like I'm trying to do. (laughs) It took him a it took him a long time to get going, but once you did it really (laughs) Uh um but but it's interesting because it has a lot of torque. It has like sixty pound feet of torque. So Uh, so so the so it gets out of the corners pretty good and the CG of the bike is so low that it actually it doesn't really feel like a big heavy bike. I mean, it is, but the brakes are good enough that it stops in a, in a it stops quickly enough, and it it transitions really well. The chassis is actually pretty good. It handles really well. But I come back to that that ground clearance issue. It's so freaking low that while you're getting on it, you start grinding foot pegs, you start grinding hard parts, and you're not even leaned over that far. Like it just needs to be a couple more inches off the ground, and then it would have like some actual off road chops. And then you could also lean it over into turns and get some good railing on it. And that's where I feel like Yamaha really missed the boat. It's not that the motor is not powerful. It's not that the bike's too heavy. It just needs a little bit more ground clearance. And then I think you'd actually have something really good there. So it's it's kind of one of those things where like I went in expecting something to be one way and it turned out to be something very different going the other way. And we took it, we did some off-road stuff. We took some bumpy roads and it was fine and had actually a good time on it. 
Um, the styling. Have to have a bad time on motorcycles. I don't have bad times on motorcycles. I it just is. don't. Yeah. I think at eighty seven hundred bucks, I think you're in a price point that Ducati is owning very well, and yeah, it, it stacks up really well against like this Triumph Scrambler, and then like if you look at like what BMW Scrambler looks like with the R nine T platform, like that's just really expensive. Um, Moto Guzzi's in there too, but not really. I mean, they are, but you know, try and find a Moto Guzzi Scrambler. Try and find a Motoguzi dealership. Right. So there's a little bit of that issue. But the one thing I will say, and I'm going to give Yamaha big props for it. They are the only Japanese manufacturer going after this space right now. And they've got their whole little, they call it their sport heritage line. And that's where the Bolt C-Spec, which is a very similar motorcycle, slots into. That's where the uh, XSR. Oh, that's the one that looks like a cow taking a shit. Well, that's actually... Supposed to be a fun little bike to I, ride. I don't care if you look at one of those <laughs> those no bullshit uh, with the crossed out no. There's a bull taking a shit. That's what that bike looks like. It looks like it has its tail up and they are taking a shit. That bike is horrid looking. I hate it. So yeah, that's in that category too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I will say like I think it's really interesting that. Yamaha's in this space. They're they're in tune with the market. And and one thing I left out, this is the first motorcycle to be developed in the US. Oh, that's so interesting. So Yamaha USA and their design department down in Cyprus huh. came up with this concept, figured out kind of all the things they wanted to do, and then sent it over to Japan and said, Hey, this is what we want to build. Part spin this thing together. Which is what they did. It's kind of a part spin special. Yeah, sure. But I like the idea that they're sitting there. They're looking at what the U.S. market is is doing. They're looking and they're seeing yeah, millennials riding this, there's, there's these bikes, and they're saying like, "Hey, what can we build right now that that would fit this market?" And they're like, "Okay, well, let's take a bolt. Let's make it look scramblerish." Yep. Boom. We're doing something because say what you will about this bike, say what you will, but you don't see uh, uh, Honda do anything. You don't see Cowie do anything. You don't see Suzuki doing anything for this segment other than bringing out bikes that have been in the market for 15 years plus sure and you know full credit to him for that full credit to them it's not the bike i i wish it was more i wish it was something that really fit competitively or i wish it was cheaper man if you if this bike was 6700 dollars, yeah that would move some units at 8700 bucks i'd be like go buy a ducati no and that's that's the thing with the ducati most people are like uh oh, that's you know you, you, we, we all wish that the bike was a little bit cheaper but it can't be because the the components are pretty darn good, and it actually has seventy something horsepower and gets down the road pretty freaking well, and all that, and weighs one hundred and thirty seven pounds less. Yeah, so for uh, for me looking at that price, I think that's why you would you just go to the Ducati shop. Shoot, I mean that that's the hard part. I think if the Ducati didn't exist, the the Yamaha stacks up really well against the Triumph, and it's a heck of a lot cheaper than. What BMW's coming out with is a hell of a lot more accessible than what Moto Guzzi's rocking. And there's no one in the Japanese side of the market touching it. Maybe, that we know of. Maybe they're gonna somebody's gonna come out with a 2017. Maybe because yeah. we are kind of late in the season. The 2017, a true 2017 model could could be interesting for it. But they're getting the jump on it. They're they got the jump. Um, I'll be curious to see how many the the dealerships take and and how many move. Um, it needs a new seat. So just factor into the price that you're going to have to buy a new seat because I've literally sat on bricks that were more comfortable. That's my big complaint. And then like all the bolts, the uh, air cleaner is just right there and your your right knee is right on top of the air cleaner. But other than that, it's actually wait, wait, a good all little... all the bolts or all the bolts? The bolts, the, the, the Yamaha bolts. 
the the cruiser yeah. style. Okay, not the. Bolts I thought there was a bolt the, sticking no. out that was uncomfortable. I no, wasn't just, sure. Yeah, and I'm seriously not being facetious. <laughs> I thought that's what you said. <laughs> a minor or a minor. <laughs> that's a that's a good joke isn't have, you, it? have you seen that louis ck no but oh, I, that's so a good, good but i remember that being a good joke i want to have sex with a minor no no no, <laughs> no, no, not no a minor, minor a, a minor, minor. <laughs> i mean a guy that digs in the earth <laughs> tiny little hands he's seen some things <laughs> oh wow yeah um there was something else i was gonna say about the scr 950 and i can't remember what it was Brakes, comfort, uh, seat. No, I'll yeah. be very curious to see. You know, one of the things they did say that that really struck me was they were saying like, you know, this is a platform. This is a bike that we're putting out there as a platform that we're hoping people are going to modify on. It's a cheap bike. There's yeah. things about it that you can change. You know, like I'm sitting here complaining about the ground clearance. Okay, well, Jensen, go take, you know, some fork tubes that are three inches longer and find some longer shocks. Put them on there and go scramble the crap out of it. And I think they're looking for people to to kind of do that. And they're kind of hoping that the bike's cheap enough that 20-something-year-olds are going to buy this bike, put another 1,000 or whatever into it to make it their own and have a fun bike that's unique for under 10K that, you know, they can go do whatever they want to do and, and live that Instagram lifestyle. And there is something to be said about that. Yeah. But I wouldn't buy one. No. No. No, I don't, I, I don't know what I would do. I like the Guzzi. The Guzzi would be cool just to show up yeah. because you'd be different. It, and I actually, unique. It, out of all the bikes... That was funny because I was listening to a, a TED talk on the flight home about authenticity. And out of all the bikes in the kind of the uh, scrambler segment right now, the Moto Guzzi is by far the most authentic. It's, you know, maybe the Triumph you could get a good argument out of too. But I sit there and look at the Guzzi and it's just like, you know what? You're a Guzzi just being a Guzzi. You're a floozy Guzzi and you don't <laughs> care what anybody thinks about you because you're just doing your thing. Yeah. And I got to respect that. And, you know, if my knees could, you know, sit on that bike and not bash into the cylinder heads, I would I would definitely rock that. I think that's a good option. I think that's a cool kind of quirky design that just fits that niche so well that it should just soak it up like a sponge. Yeah, but then it's it's so compromised, like you're never going to. They're all. Yeah. Come I, on. I know, you're right. Come on. You're right. Well, there. did you see the spy shot of the Scrambler? Uh, long travel. I did. I got that sent to me by uh, a very talented photographer. So I mean, as I expected, I, you know, we were expecting another. And that might we talked about how what on the on the Ducati show <laughs> that you're we're looking for a mid-size um, adventure tour, and that kind of might be it. If it you could. look at it, there, there's a possibility that that might be the 800 cc long travel uh, post heritage proper. Because if you take an urban enduro, a Ducati Scrambler urban enduro, which is the one with the, the dirt, green, the dirt bikey yeah. looking stuff, it's still horrid off road. It's not. It it's really not made for that at well, all. It's Those not any more of an joke. enduro than than any of the other. No, absolutely. So this that looks like they're actually if if that's what it is, that's that's a legitimate shot across the bow I mean, I for any other manufacturer that's making a an off roader. Right? I think that's legit. Like I feel like it'd be like a good like call it like the Baja or something like something that could like legitimately do the yeah. Barstow to Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been saying that that would be you a know? great thing if they actually made a bike that you could really go do something like that on. And, and that, and you know, there's a little bit of me that has like faith in that because I, you know, having that conversation with Claudio, like I really do think they're sitting down and they're listening to 
the criticism of the bikes that come out and people be like, you can't go off road with that. That's not a real scrambler and be like, all right, you want your go fuck off in the woods scrambler? We'll make you a go fuck off in the woods scrambler. We're going to put some, some longer suspension on here. It's going to come out with TKC eighties and you're going to go get your brat life on. Right, life. I hope, I hope that's hashtag, hashtag life. Hashtag brat life. Brat life. And that's what I brat want. Life. And that's what I hope. I guess that's what I hoped that the SCR could have been like, if it just had a little bit longer suspension travel, a little longer legs, get some of that. I mean, it's still heavy, but I wouldn't really worry about it as much. It's so low. It handles so well, actually. That's the crazy thing. I'm sitting here talking about like a 500 plus pound bike and be like, it handles so well. It's like, he's so well spoken. It handles so well. How, how was the, uh, when you were about to go, how was it when you put the kickstand up? Did it did, you know, it did it go up smoothly? It was interesting. It was interesting. The kickstand operated in both the up and down positions. <laughs> uh, some some people had a little bit more trouble with that than others. <laughs> uh, we definitely we definitely had an oopsies <laughs> really in the parking lot for the wave that was before mine. Uh-huh. I won't say any names, Shalina, but um, <laughs> one bike did fall over. And then in our wave, we had like easily the save of the century. Like I think, I mean, you'd have to get a judge's ruling on what a tipped over bike actually is. Like, does it count if just the foot peg hits, yeah. or does like a like a frame or a fairing have to touch? Like exhaust. But this, yeah, yeah. This would have to go down to the judge's video review on whether or not this bike fully tipped over. But a gentleman on our wave saved it by the most narrow of margins. It was the save of the century because, like, I think anyone else, he's a he's a larger guy, tall, you know, strong looking dude. If it had been someone smaller, if it, like if someone that was like a couple inches shorter or didn't go to the gym, that that bike's on its side, and you're the embarrassment of the because press launch. the kickstand. Just there's, I mean, it was on the kickstand side, so I can only imagine that it was a kickstand related issue. Whether he wasn't familiar with the operation of the kickstand. If maybe the kickstand wasn't fully down in the locked down position yeah. for takeoff, or if he just his kickstand was up, which Kick. which is no bueno. That's where we need to be. Kickstands up. All right. Good talk. See you out there. But was that all bullshit? That last bit because that wasn't even what I was going for. Right? No. Yeah. That, that's all a true story. We were at the top of Mount Palomar. And like we're stopping and we're just like turning bikes around and it's kind of got a slope to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Not I know really. Exactly. I know exactly. The but deal. it was just like one of those things where like it's just kind of a, like I don't know what the fuck the guy did, but I mean we're all watching it and we're like oh 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 and he's just like Ooh. I mean like hernias. You just watch no, him have like a he's, giant he's hernia. He's got a prolapsed colon. Something. Right there. <laughs> he's just bleeding out of his anus right now, listening <laughs> to the podcast, being like, "Hey, Shalina dropped it. I saved it. Whatever." <laughs> but it was like we were just sitting there like you know like. <laughs> that was that was well done. Like, let's get this guy a beer or something, because you know that was that could have been a tipsy oopsies.